Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, I'd like to tell you a story about a friend of mine who uh, recently came to Shanghai. He runs a number of factories here in China. And it was so interesting because we had dinner and he was complaining that the cost of his operations here are just skyrocketing. Now, a lot of people talk about the rising labor costs and rising kind of cost of production. Uh, but what he said was so interesting was that the Chinese government now is imposing a number of environmental controls. They're coming in and doing occupational safety and health inspections and imposing not necessarily fines, but they're making them upgrade their factory. And they're really imposing kind of first world standards more and more on the factories here in China, particularly in cities like Shanghai, where there's a lot of concern about pollution uh, in air and water. And what that brings up is this very interesting phenomenon about whether or not made in China, this famous, famous thing that China's been the factory and the engine of of global manufacturing for so long is now coming to an end. And if you follow Helen High, who is this kind of very enthusiastic supporter of manufacturing uh, in Africa, she will tell you that there are now 85 million jobs that are going to be up for grabs in the next few years because of the offshoring of Chinese manufacturing. And interestingly, she says, now not everybody believes this, but Helen High and our guest today say that Africa will be the beneficiary. This has drawn a lot of positive and excited attention in Africa. Um, several African governments um, have picked up on this. There's a lot of discussion about how to attract Chinese jobs to Africa. Um, Ethiopia is frequently cited as as, as an example of, of an early, early success of this strategy. But there are also skeptics who say that most of these jobs will actually go to places like Southeast Asia and South Asia. So... It, it is, to a certain extent, a success story already, but to another extent, a kind of a future dream. Well, I, I weigh on that kind of spectrum of optimist, skeptic. I tend to be more on the skeptic side, in part because after living in Vietnam for five years, I've seen the amazing growth of the manufacturing sector there. And in part because it's not just because of low labor costs. And a lot of people talk about labor being the core component of manufacturing. But one also has to talk about infrastructure, supply chain networks, proximity to your markets, all of those other things come into play. But somebody who now is making the case for Africa is Irene Yuan Sun. She is the author of a new book that's coming out, The Next Factory of the World, How Chinese Investment is Reshaping Africa. She joins us on the line for the very first time on the show from Beijing, China. Irene, thank you so much for speaking, taking some time to speak with us. Eric and Kobus, hi. It's my pleasure to be with you. We are just so thrilled. Your book was absolutely fascinating. It's a short book, and it's by the time people listen to the show, it will be out. Uh, and I, I really recommend everybody uh, go pick up a copy. I think 160, 170 pages. So we're not talking about a big academic tome here. It's actually something digestible, and you can do it in a weekend, and I really recommend it. Go ahead and kind of set up what prompted you to kind of investigate this as a topic and kind of give us the introduction to what was behind uh, the next factory of the world. Yeah, happy to. So I have long been interested in Africa and I went, my first experiences on the continent were of the academic bent and sort of the classic Western 
naive do-gooder bent, if I could characterize myself that way. Um, so I wrote my undergraduate thesis about uh, colonial medical history in Kenya, and then I moved right after I was an undergrad to rural Namibia and taught school as a volunteer teacher, teaching eighth and ninth grade maths and English. Um, and so really classic kind of do-gooder uh, intent uh, in in the classic Western sense. Um, and when I lived in Namibia, and this is, you know, I lived in northern Namibia, rural area close to the Angolan border, um, a 12-hour drive from Vintuk, I noticed that there were Chinese people there. <laughs> and it sort of didn't occur to me that this is very important, other than the fact that I could go and get vegetables on the weekend. Um, and, you know, I was homesick and when Chinese New Year rolled around, I'd never thought of like making dumplings without my mother my entire life. But all of a sudden, I really, really wanted to make dumplings in rural Namibia. And so I walked into the nearest Chinese shop and talked to the owner and just tried to procure my vegetables. And so that was the extent of the relationship. But through that, I got to know the fact that there were Chinese businesses employing lots of people. And meanwhile, in my classrooms, my kids, I could just see, I mean, from this area, a couple of kids a year made it to college, right? Most of them were going to be subsistence farmers. And so it just planted the seed in my mind of what is the actual possibility of this development model that makes so so much sense on paper that the West has been pushing in, in Africa. There has to be a better, more practical way. And so that sort of stayed with me throughout my career. I uh, went to McKinsey, did a lot of work in, in global health, um, but kept encountering Chinese people on the continent, whether it's in Nigeria or in Malawi. And that just planted the seed that this is a different model. This is interesting. And the kernel of what I find most interesting and most promising about what's happening is the confluence of China's economy and Africa's economy right now, which is that there is a shift happening in China that perfectly matches to what Africa can offer, right? With these manufacturing jobs that will come out of China to go somewhere, one of the places that could be the next somewhere is Africa. And with that comes the possibility of industrialization, which in the history of the world is the only way that countries, basically besides Qatar and countries that luck into extraordinary resource wealth, is the only proven path that countries have had to becoming middle class and staying there. So your book is structured for me in a very interesting way where, you know, you you first take a look at what's going on on the ground um, in existing Chinese factories in Africa. And then you you extrapolate from that and from, from this kind of larger kind of macroeconomic uh, situation that, that you've been describing um, to look at the future. So in terms of the first half of the book, when you went to these factories um, in, in Africa, what, what did you actually encounter? All kinds of things, all kinds of characters. Uh, that was one of the real joys of of writing this book. And I started researching it before I really knew what I was looking for. Uh, and so I would, you know, go around Nigeria, literally just 
meeting Chinese people and asking them to take me to their places of work. And a fair number of those were factories. Uh, and so I got to tour just all these factories and walk them end to end and talk to the line managers and talk to some of the workers. And I've been to, I've been to now more than 50 Chinese factories in different countries in Africa. I've been to tiny, tiny factories where you can't even really call these things production lines. They're more sort of almost cottage industries just graduated a level um, where it's just a group of people assembling things in batches all the way to giant multi-billion dollar concerns that have the latest machinery imported from the best manufacturers and that are completely up to global production standards and of course everything else in between. Your book read something, when I was reading it, it read a lot like Howard French's book, uh, China's Second Continent. And there, Howard French kind of went on this, uh, almost a travelogue road trip. And he went around and, and, and talked about his anecdotes of meeting people. And I just thought yours was very anecdotal in a very accessible way. And I really felt like I got to know some of the people and the characters you were talking about. And I would laugh a couple times because one early on in the book, you talk about how one one of the Chinese factories, he decided to do ceramics. And so he called up his friend in China and said, what's the heaviest thing that they're shipping over from China? And he said, uh, they said, well, ceramics. And they were making a 7% profit on that. And he said, okay, no, making a 5%. And he said, okay, I'm going to figure out a way to make a 7% by producing them in Nigeria. And I just thought, man, this is fascinating to see how these people, some of them who don't come from very sophisticated business backgrounds or educational backgrounds, you know, are are able yet to develop these and find these niches and exploit them. Um, and I'd like you to tell me about Barry Gu in Lesotho. And I found his story and the troubles that he went through to be most interesting. What's his story? I met Barry on one of the uh, not great days of his life. Uh, so I arrived in Lesotho um, in Maseru, the capital. And for, for those listeners not familiar with Lesotho, it's this tiny country completely enveloped by South Africa. And it has about 2 million people. It's one of the poorer countries in Africa. Um, and it also suffers from a pretty high HIV rate. And so this tiny country, but it does have a clothing apparel manufacturing sector, which is largely, uh, which largely consists of Chinese and Taiwanese owned factories. And so I had made an appointment with Barry through other contacts and he had said, okay, show up tomorrow morning, first thing at my office and we can chat. So I show up at his office and he is, his eyes are bulging. He had been up all night because his factory, his clothing manufacturing factory had burned down over the course of the night. And what had happened is somehow the fire had spread from the, the factory warehouse next door. And by the time anybody spotted it, it was too late. And so he calls the fire department, but the only fire truck in the entire country is at the airport. And the airport had shut down already because there was only like four or five flights a day in and out of the country. And the last of them had, had left already. 
And so by the time the fire truck comes, it's definitely too late to do anything about it. They try anyway, but the fire truck doesn't have very much water <laughs> in it. <laughs> and so literally, Barry is just staying up all night watching his factory burn down. And then in the middle of the night, um, the Minister of Trade and Industry comes. And of course, he's just a, you know, he's a minister, but he's just a guy. He can't do anything about the fact that the fire truck doesn't have any water. And so he mainly just says to Barry, I'm really sorry that this is happening. But, you know, this is how important the clothing sector is to Lesotho. And so he goes away and then Barry keeps staying up and... And then in the morning, I basically just sit around the office as Barry calls all these people trying to figure out what to do next. And he calls the um, the insurance company. And he got super unlucky because the fire happened when he had just completed an order and just received raw materials to do the next order. And all of that burned down. So the insured value didn't cover this unusually high value that, of stuff that was sitting inside the factory. Uh, and then, you know, he, he's told by the insurance company that the backer of the policy is the central bank of Lesotho. So he tries to find their phone number. And I just remember him, you know, like the look on his face and just the frustration because he tries to look up their phone number and their website is down. Yeah. Right? And so you sort of see and, well, what me, it's yeah, like. And let me give you a yeah. quote. I'd like to kind of share a, a paragraph from your book related to Barry. And, and you write, you have to be crazy to run a factory in Africa. Barry's story shows some of the many obstacles, big and small, the lack of a functioning fire brigade, the difficulty of finding a phone number when you need it, the shady neighbors, the geopolitical turmoil, emotional strain that wears down even the hardiest psyche. It's hard work. It's risky. And success is far from assured. In this day and age, the only sizable mass of people crazy enough to take on the job are Chinese people like Barry. Fresh from working their way up in factories in China and ready to take a gamble to make their fortune. It takes crazy people like Barry to build a factory in Africa, and that's one of the main reasons Africa's shot at industrialization is tied up with China. I thought that paragraph right there basically summarized your entire book. Well, everybody, don't go buy the book then. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you, the book explains why. The book definitely explains why. But that the Chinese are crazy enough to do it. But Kobus brought up the point before the show. Why can't Africans do this? Why does it need the Chinese to come over and do this for them? Or do this there? Not necessarily for them, but to do it there. Yeah. Well, that's bound up with the reason why... No one besides Great Britain has ever figured out how to do this de novo on their own. If you look at the history of how industrialization happens around the world, it's been the history of foreign investment sparking in a new place the beginnings of industrialization and then seeing that grow and that place becomes the new foreign investors somewhere else and so on in this sort of chain reaction. In economics, there's this theory called the flying geese theory, and that's basically the gist of it. And so this is how the U.S. industrialized on the back of 
investment from Great Britain. This is how Japan industrialized from foreign investment, largely from the U.S. And then Japan's investment in turn spurred the industrialization of the Asian tigers, South Korea, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, and Taiwan. And then they in turn invested in China. And China now is about to become that foreign investor for somewhere else and likely for a number of somewhere else's because China is so big that it sort of sucked that generation of foreign investment in manufacturing unto itself. And now the structural forces, the rising labor costs, the rising energy costs in China make China the next place to pass that baton. And the question is, can Africa receive that baton? How can it position itself to do that? Well, that is actually, you know, what I'd like to ask you next, actually, is what does Africa offer um, this, you know, a, a Chinese um, entrepreneur that, for example, Bangladesh or Vietnam doesn't, considering especially the problems in Africa around a stable electricity source? For example, in many African uh, many African countries, or the the difficulty to get stuff from uh, the factory to a port, for example. So, what what are some of Africa's strengths that that they can actually focus on? There's actually a number of them, um, and this is where I wanted my book to be a contribution towards understanding the several business models, plural that are possible with with manufacturing in Africa. Because I think there is this misperception that industrialization and manufacturing in developing countries is simply a low labor cost play. And actually, when you look at the factories that have been successful in Africa, Chinese or otherwise, there's a number of plays. There's certainly the low labor cost play, there is the trade policy play. And so one of the reasons why Lesotho works as a, a location to manufacture is because it has been the beneficiary of things like AGOA, the African Growth and Opportunity Act, that the U.S. Um, basically gives tariff-free access to uh low-income countries in Africa to its market. And so it then gives an advantage as a manufacturing site for U.S.-bound goods. There is the local market play, and that is both for um, for industrial goods, so, so B2B goods, things like ceramic tiles that you're selling primarily to housing developers, but also B2C goods. And so there's a story in the book about what has to be the largest flip-flop maker in the entire world. I mean, this firm churns out a million pairs of flip-flops per day. <laughs> which is just incredible when you think about that in, in Nigeria, right? That's a pair for every man, woman, and child in Nigeria each year. And they're able to do that because they're incredibly high volume and extremely large scale. Um, and, you know, there's, there's also the niche play where you go in with a smaller factory uh, because the road transport system, transport linkages are so poor in Africa, there's these sort of sheltered local 
usually subnational markets. And if you right size your factory, you can earn a really nice margin in that sort of sheltered, protected market. And so there's a variety of business models that are currently working in manufacturing in Africa. And that's why all these Chinese firms are are drawn to this place because the margins are extremely healthy. They're better than in China. So far, it's been a margin play. And I think for the future, the question is whether Africa can turn itself, uh, or at least a few locations within Africa, into the sort of large-scale clustered manufacturing that China has been able to do along its eastern coast and actually manufacture at large scale for global export. Let me, I want to pick up on that theme and play the devil's advocate here a little bit. When I was living in Vietnam, the government, and I met several times with government leaders, and they said, what keeps them up at night is the fact that 85% of Vietnam's exports have zero value added to it. It's just the hands and the labor that processes raw materials from other countries and exports them out. Whether it's Microsoft phones, Samsung TVs, Nike shoes, there's no value added to it. And in many ways, Vietnam's labor force is comparable to a lot of the labor forces in Africa. And you spoke at the beginning of the show as if it's almost an inevitability because that's the way it's been, that countries must industrialize in order to move to the next strata of their economic development. And I'd like to make the case that with artificial intelligence, automation, we're in a new world now. The industrial era is coming to an end in many respects. So the rules are being rewritten in a way that it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take Ford or Chevy or Daimler-Benz, 5,000 people to run a factory, a plant to make cars anymore. It takes, you know, a few hundred or I don't know the exact numbers, but it's a small percentage of what it used to do. Foxconn now is automating as fast as they can their factories to build iPhones and HP and Dell parts and whatnot. And so the world is coming into this new era where I think developing countries like Vietnam and Africa will be crushed because the labor that they depend on with no added value will not be necessary or it won't be necessary in anywhere near the levels that are required to employ the vast numbers of young people that are looking for work. So uh, so maybe they'll be making flip-flops. Sure, the margin on flip-flops might be there, but China recognized that 20, 25 years of making apparel and flip-flops didn't get them where they wanted to go, and it may not get Africa where they want to go. Can you make the counter-argument to that, uh, to my approach there? The counter-argument really is that what we're seeing with automation is not a sea change, but rather a continuation of what has always been the case in industrial firms and in manufacturing firms, which is that there have always been a push towards mechanization, automation, using capital to save labor and to do things more efficiently than labor can. Right. When I think about your case of, of Foxconn automating things, that's not so different than what Toyota pioneered with lean manufacturing in the 80s in their plants. And that's been picked up by automakers all over the world. That saves labor. It has saved lots and lots of labor. Before that, the, the generation of U.S. automakers figured out how to do how to 
introduce many labor-saving technologies. So the point is that this has always been the case, but it's always been compensated by increased demand for that increased output. And fundamentally, it's still hard to run factories with absolutely zero people in it. Right. And so when you look at a sector like denim weaving, that has been absolutely automated to a large extent. But a, a modern denim mill that makes denim for uh, that supplies denim to Levi's jeans still employs a thousand people. And that's a lot less than what a factory, a denim mill would have employed a generation ago, but there's also a lot more demand for for denim now, in part because that drives lower consumer prices, which as we all know, being good economists, that that drives increased demand for the, for the output. And so I see this as an equilibrium that will continue to compensate for itself. And it's important to then look at the subsectors. And so you're right that I'm sure you can find a, a subsector of manufacturing that will absolutely disappear. But then we'll also learn how to make new stuff that we can't even imagine right now. And those things will come online and there will be demand for that. And so I see that as sort of, again, the way, the logic of how this has always worked. And there's no reason to think that in at this point, Africa will just be super unlucky and run into uh, the the brick wall just as you know just as it has a shot at at getting the the baton to become the next factory of the world. If you again, if if you were advising um, a, a prospective Chinese um, investor in Africa, would you advise them to focus more on using Africa as a as a base for manufacturing that would then be exported? So, for example, via Agoa, or as uh, some Chinese apparel makers are doing that have set up factories in Ethiopia, where where a lot of those those products go to Europe. Or would you uh, advise them to to also try and focus on growing a local market? Like how how much? Uh, future do you see in the, in the in the near relatively near future for this this endless kind of dream that you always see mentioned in African development literature of of boosting intra Africa trade? Yeah, it's a good question, and the answer largely depends on what you as a firm make and what you're good at. The truth of the matter is, I mean, the and this might be just my bias as you know, a, a McKinsey consultant. You know, you're always used to looking at the firm level, but it's really true, particularly in Africa, because there's all these different business models you can take within manufacturing, and absolutely, if you go to Lesotho, you're probably going there to take advantage of some sort of a Goa-related policy. If you're going to Ethiopia, it's probably because in manufacturing, it's probably because you see how serious the government is in setting up incentives, tax incentives and land incentives for manufacturers that want to set up there. And then you also see the proximity to the European markets. You can look at other things and ceramic tiles, another one to come back to, where it just, you know, the the domestic market demand is enormous, right? Like Africa is just 
building. You go on the streets of Addis, there's new buildings all the time. You you go to Nigeria, you go to Kenya, there's buildings going up all the time. And this is just a good that makes no sense logistics wise, right? Like to ship it, that that constitutes such a large proportion of the cost of the actual product. And so construction materials is one steel is is part of that where it just makes so much sense to figure out how to do that locally in order to serve the actual domestic demand within Africa. And so, again, I come back to this notion of multiple business models. And this is less confusing, I think, on the firm level than it sounds, right? And so, in practice, what's happening is Chinese factory owners who grew up their whole lives working up factories in China, they go to Africa and they sort of look around and they know from experience how much it costs to make something, right? And they'll go to the markets uh, and literally ask, you know, what, how much is this, right? And then they'll sort of back calculate, oh, is there a margin to be made there if I were the one making this? And then they work backwards from there and then that, that's how they decide what to make. If, if it were, for example, uh, something where both the, how can I say, like a good where the foreign market and the African market, you know, are, are relatively on the same level, like, for example, jeans. So H&M manufactures in um, in Ethiopia and we buy from H&M in, in Johannesburg frequently. Um, so, you know, if, you know, Africans wear lots of jeans. So in, in, in that case where, you know, kind of where the, the kind of, the, the relatively same demand exists within and outside of Africa. How, how does that change the, the equation? Yeah, jeans is an interesting example because the the value chain for jeans is a global value chain. Right? So basically someone with a brand like H&M would uh, – the example I know better is Levi's because I've actually been to some of the factories that supply the Levi's. You know, they'll go to these big sourcing companies, which are all Asian firms, largely based in Hong Kong, and they'll say, hey, you know, these are the designs I've drawn up for this season – can you submit bids as to how much to make it? And these sourcing firms will sort of calculate how much they think they'll 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 make it for with a margin for themselves. And then once that agreement is reached, they'll turn around and subcontract to a global network of factories. And so they'll they'll take a parcel of genes uh, that need to be made, and maybe a third of it will go to Vietnam and a third of it will go to Ethiopia and a third of it will go to Lesotho to subcontracting clothing firms and they ship them the the raw materials the cloth the the button the thread and so on send them the design and then these these factories make the jeans and then send it off to Europe or the US right and so that's how that works and this is why you know that particular industry ends up being both highly local. And so how well you do as one of these clothing subcontractors that makes the actual jeans depends a lot on your local labor costs, but also your currency fluctuations year to year. Um, but it also is dependent on these, these, you know, the big sourcing firms in Asia that parcel out 
right, that take the contracts, deal with Levi's, and then parcel out the, the work. I'd like to close our discussion on what is potentially the most sensitive issue. And in all the years that Kobus and I have been doing the China-Africa project, there is one myth that stands above every other one of them. And that is when the Chinese come to invest in Africa, whether it's the public sector or private sector, state-owned enterprises or private factories, um, they bring their own labor with them. They don't hire locals. And this is what spurs so much of the neocolonialism narrative uh, that is remarkably durable. Tell me a little bit about, from your research both at McKinsey and how that informed your book, uh, about the people who work for all these Chinese factories. That, you're right, is has been an enduring myth. And um, I, uh, as someone that's long done research in, in the China-Africa field, it's been one of these puzzling things, as I'm sure it has been for you, where, you know, people like Deborah Bradagam, um, Barry Seltman, you know, all of these well-respected scholars will put out these papers that are well-researched showing, oh, you know, 80% local employment or 90% local employment in this country, in this industry. And sort of, it just somehow never lands. And I had the same experience writing this book where I visited more than 50 Chinese factories. There was no way that the numbers, you know, you could just see, you walk into a clothing factory in Lesotho, or you walk into a pharmaceutical production factory in Ethiopia, and everybody you see are local Lesotho people or Ethiopians, right? Like, there's just no way that this number was low. Um, And yet the narrative continued to be that, oh, Chinese firms don't hire local workers. And so actually, because of the experience of writing this book, I really felt deeply the need for a large-scale quantitative study. And so because I had worked at McKinsey and I actually left to go to grad school and I wrote this book while I was in grad school, um, and but I had stayed in touch with many of my mentors. Uh, and so we started talking about, well, you know, the only way to know is to stop trading small-scale studies that people just brush aside um, and to stop trading these anecdotal pieces of evidence, you have to actually get a representative sample. And so we together conceived of this large-scale study where we would actually go out and interview a large sample of Chinese firms. We ended up interviewing on-site more than a 1,000 Chinese firms operating in Africa. Uh, and it is an enormous sample. And so now it's irrefutable. We found that 89% of the employees of Chinese firms in Africa are local employees. This is a sample of firms that together employ over 300,000 people, so very sizable. And when you break out the manufacturing sector specifically, it's even higher. It's 94% local employment. It's remarkable that it hasn't stuck. I mean, this thing, this narrative just keeps going on. We're going to post your show, and I guarantee you that 50% of the comments on this show are going to be, you know, they don't hire locals. It, no matter what we say, it's almost like the, the, the Trump fake news. People will believe anything. But 
That's the way it is. Everybody, the next factory of the world, how Chinese investment is reshaping Africa is a new book by Irene Yuan Sun. It comes out very soon. By the time you listen to the show, it will probably be out. Irene, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to pick up the book, how can they do that? It is available on Amazon, and it should also be available in some physical retailers in the U.S. And we are working on, or over the next few months, we will be working on some Chinese translations. Uh, there's a Taiwanese edition that's already been planned, and I know we'll look to do a mainland Chinese edition as well. It is published by Harvard Business Review Press. It is definitely one of the books that you want to read this year. It will go on our top 10 list. Every year we publish a top 10 list of China-Africa books. So this you, you've already made it and the year's not even over. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. I'm very honored. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. And if people want to follow you, are you on social media anywhere, Twitter, Facebook, or things like that, that people can kind of keep up with what you're reading and writing these days? I am very bad at social media. So really, you're no, like an academic. Yeah, it's really amazing. You know, Cobus, you're, I'm like you're, a hermit. Your academic just, colleagues I, will be I proud. I around in factories and just I like talking to people face to face and would have, looking at what they make. Let me tell you, you would have one of the most badass Instagram feeds if you took pictures of all those factories that you went to. So just take that as a as a as a piece of career advice. Do an Instagram feed, and we'll all follow you, Irene son thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it thank you it's been my pleasure Gobis, I, I have to say that before our discussion i was skeptical and reading the whole book i was skeptical i am still not a hundred percent a believer that africa will industrialize the same way that asia industrialized and i don't believe in the inevitability of it all and again, you brought this up during the discussion that there are many, many factors that go into it, whether it's governance, infrastructure, location, as she talked about, trade policy, trade agreements. But let's say Donald Trump rips up AGOA the same way that he ripped up TPP, that he's ripping up the trade agreements with Europe, that he wants to take down NAFTA. All of a sudden, Lesotho then doesn't really matter as much anymore for, for trading with the United States. And I think there are so many variabilities that go into this. And I'm still skeptical, but I have to say, reading her book and speaking with Irene, I am more persuaded than I was before. So that is really, she does make a very persuasive case, even for a skeptic like me. She makes a very persuasive case. I would tend to think that in, how can I say, you know, the, the the point that I raised during the conversation about about the possibility of intra-Africa trade, like if when when you're in Africa and you and you're talking to to people who are working in this field, that is really what they're focusing on. That that is their kind of holy grail. So they tend to focus a lot on on you know if Ogoa dies suddenly, then the the next step for Lesotho would be to export those genes to South Africa. Um, and yeah, but let but that's, make that, it's not make that the same. Hold on, hold on. It's not the it's same. It's not the same. To, I mean, you know, a market of 340 million people in South Africa are that's two sure, totally but different. Say, say, but you know, if 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 you can then export also to other populations in the sub region, if you could start exporting to Nigeria, then that starts you know kind of mounting you know the 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 the, the continent itself is, is a billion people 
Um, so, so they, they, and, and it's a building people with very, very few genes. Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a really, there's a lot of demand for, for ba- very basic consumer, consumer objects in Africa. Um, the problem is to get it to the people. But the other problem, and I think this is something that where Africans and anyone who is interested in investing in Africa in, in this kind of manufacturing needs to be very creative is Africans frequently have different needs. There's specific things that they want that are not necessarily being delivered to them. And that is frequently those are not necessarily the things that, that can be easily sold both to them and to external markets um, for a whole bunch of different reasons. For example, you know, um, Huawei, for example, has, has been very successful in selling low-cost smartphones that are also very resilient against things like dust. Um, you know, so so there are certain kind of specific needs that, 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 that drive consumption in Africa, but that could possibly also drive consumption in other places in the global south. Um, so it's not, if you can't sell to New York, that doesn't mean necessarily that you can't sell to other places in the global south. The, the, the challenge is just to figure out how to make that work. And the problem is that the, the barriers to making that work are relatively high. Well, they're relatively high, but I think as she shows through many of the stories that, that she profiled throughout the book, that the Chinese, uh, these Chinese investors are very creative in figuring out these niche businesses like ceramics, jeans, and where they can make a 5 or 6% margin in one of the most difficult parts of the world to set up a business. Uh, and But I think one other very important point we should make is that we've been talking about Africa, and this may not, in fact, be Africa. This may be Ethiopia. It may be Namibia. It may be certain countries that are more open-minded, have better governance, are investing in infrastructure, are upgrading their labor forces. So this industrialization trend may not happen universally across all 54 countries, but it will happen in fits and spurts in certain regions and whatnot. And I think that's an important point to make as well. Kopas, give us your final thought on this and where you think this is going. I am relatively optimistic. Um, I sometimes am more optimistic about the future of Africa, I think, than you might be, simply because I happen to be in a, a big African metropole and speaking with lots of young Africans on a daily basis. And I just see a lot of potential and a lot of energy and a lot of, like, hungriness for success. Um the, what, what I sometimes worry about is, is you know, the, a lack of skills and especially a lack of foresight and planning and vision on the part of African governments. Um, the, the people are amazing. The governments are crap. Um, and so there the issue lies that, 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 you know, kind of that's always a problem in Africa. It's always bad leaders. Um, and so, you know, traditionally China, Chinese Entrepreneurs have been able to deal with bad leadership and bad governments. They've been able to to make businesses within bad governance environments. Um, And so, you know, that that might be their strength in this case. I'm skeptical not just about Africa, but about much of... I got to say, I have a very dark view of the future. I just think we're entering a period of tremendous volatility and instability. I think automation is not going to help that. And that developing countries in Southeast Asia and Africa have no shock absorbers to take what's coming, whether it's in the form of climate change, economic instability, Donald Trump. You, you just there's so many X factors. So I don't want to take anything away from the young people in Vietnam and Africa and all th- throughout Southeast Asia 
who have all the energy in the world, but they're facing incredible headwinds that are, that are, I think are coming and I don't know how well they're going to face. And so that's where my skepticism is born from is a grim, bleak outlook to the future. <laughs> so what a great way to end the show. Um, <laughs> so listen, where, where do you fall? Where does everybody kind of this discussion, Cobus uh, is a lot more optimistic than I am. Do you think that there is a future for manufacturing in Africa, particularly Chinese manufacturing in Africa? Does that scare you in some ways that the Chinese are the only ones, as Irene made the case in her book, that are capable of doing this because they have gone through this back home in China in a way that nobody else in the world has done on the level and the scale. So they have the skills, they have the clients, the networks, the connections, the supply chains, all of that to be able to bring that to African countries and start their own factories for 5 and 7% margins, which, as Irene pointed out, can be very, very lucrative when you're selling a million flip-flops every day or every month. Incredible. So what do you think? Is this good for Africa? Is it bad for Africa? Let us know what you think on all of our social media platforms. Copus and I are updating them every day, 24 hours a day, in fact, uh, on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and we'll have all the addresses and the dots and Ws for you coming up later. So for that edition, that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another show. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.